In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, just a quick recap about what we spoke about last week. We spoke about the, the gifts and um, the grace that, that comes from God, about how um, what we have is not necessarily something that we earn based on our merit, um, and, and that it's a gift from God, that it's His grace. And we spoke about how Christ descended and ascended, that He might fill all things, and that the work of uh, building the church is, is reserved for the saints or the faithful people within the congregation. It's not necessarily something that's exclusive for the clergy or the priest, which is a, a very powerful message for every person. It's a good reminder that uh, the work of building the church is not just for the people at the top, but for everyone. Uh, we also spoke about our ultimate um, goal is to attain the fullness of Christ. So we spoke about um, speaking or, or actually doing the truth in love, which is uh, essentially not just to teach people, but it's essentially for our own growth. And then we concluded with some thoughts on the unity of the body of Christ and turning away from the life of the Gentiles, and we mentioned four points about what those issues were uh, that that can basically define the path of the Gentiles. And then we said that those could basically be reduced to the the fourth and final point, which is um, the hardness of heart. That's basically like the core of all of the issues that we find in the, the way of the Gentiles. All right, so any questions, also, comments, anything? We said that those could basically be reduced. Hang on one second, let me just put this on mute. All right, so any comments or questions about what we spoke about last week before we, we dive in? Okay, so again, I hope that you'll be as engaged and as interactive as possible, and we'll try to cover as much as possible today, hopefully get, get to chapter 5 um, from uh, the, the time that we have together. All right, so let's begin from chapter 4, verse 20. And we'll go until verse 24. Alright. So, Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. So he says, But you did not thus learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new nature, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so take a moment to read that on your own one more time and we'll, we'll discuss it together.
Alright, so he says, but you did not thus learn Christ. Remember, we take that in context because he just spoke about what the way of the Gentiles is like, what the way of the Gentiles is really all about. And then the very next thing he says, but you did not thus learn Christ. What does that mean? What's he trying to say here? It's kind of an awkward transition, but it's important to understand the link that that he he puts here to bring us into this next section. What does that mean? But you did not thus learn Christ. So if we look at it in all simplicity, we could translate it simply to say, this is not what you learned about Christ. Okay? Because St. Paul wants to reduce everything to Christ. He speaks about the way of the Gentiles. And then he says, but this is not Christ. You didn't learn Christ in the manner of the Gentiles, in their way of life. You weren't discipled in Christ to follow that way. So this is not who Christ is. This is not the discipleship that you received. And so if it's not Christ, you need to eliminate it. If it's not Christ, you need to remove it from your mind and throw it out. Okay? So... He wants to bring their attention to a transformation. And he wants to go from the way of the Gentiles to the, the better or the, the, the right path. Okay? So he says, you didn't thus learn Christ. And he says, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And he's saying, like, you knew who he was because you've learned and heard about Christ. You were taught about Christ. You know who he is, right? So you didn't learn Christ in that way. Therefore, that implication here is this. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful lust. And then he continues about this this whole sense of, transformation. And that's what St. Paul is emphasizing here. He's going to go from, okay, that's not Christ, now let me tell you what is. There has to be a shift. There has to be a transformation. Some sort of change or, or conversion. Okay, So that's why he'll use this sort of imagery or this analogy of taking something off and putting something on. Right, so he wants to direct their attention to this sort of replacement. And if you think of what this sort of conversion or transformation brings their attention to, one of the very first things that comes to mind is baptism. Right? Because in baptism, we are buried, the old man is put to death, and the new man comes to life. 
Right? So, in a sense, he wants to direct their attention to actualize the renewal that they already received in baptism. Right? So, he says, take off the old man and put on the new man. Put on the new nature. And they've already received this new nature whenever they were baptized, but it's, it's only effective in as much as it's actualized. It's only effective in as much as it's practiced and put into action. So yes, they might have been baptized, but there must be a renewal of that baptism. There must be a constant change that's happening. Okay? Now, what's the first step in this renewal? What's the first step in this process? If, if we say, okay, I took off the old man. I walked away from those sins. I eliminated everything that was dragging the old man down to the ground. I eliminated the lusts. I eliminated the, the sinful pleasures. Everything is put off. Now what? Confession and communion. Confession, communion. Okay, very good. What, what, the, what does that do? Whenever you confess, whenever you take communion, whenever you're doing those things, how, how does it affect that change? And he says this very clear. Look at verse 22. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Look at verse 23. Okay, because 22 he says, take off the old man. Take off the old nature. And then the confession, communion, all the sacraments, everything allows what to happen and he says it very clearly in verse 23. Renewal in the spirit of your minds. Okay? So for this change or this repentance for our transformation to actually happen as we partake of the sacraments like communion and confession and everything that allows us to be transformed, there must be a renewal in the spirit of our mind. There must be a renewal in the spirit of our minds. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read something like this, it sounds a bit philosophical. Like, what do you mean the renewal of the spirit of your mind? How, do you, how are you renewed in the spirit of your mind? Like, does your mind have a spirit? It's kind of strange. So let's take a look at what St. Jerome says, okay? He says, We're not being renewed in our thinking process apart from the renewal of our spirits, nor are we renewed in our spirits without thinking. We're being jointly renewed in the spirit of our mind. Hence, as we sing psalms in the spirit, 
so we also sing them in our thoughts. As we pray in the Spirit, so we also pray in our thoughts. The renewal of the Spirit of our mind means that when the thought is clear and pure, then the Spirit is rightly joined to it. They're so coupled as if by a cohesive glue that we no longer speak simply of spirit, but of the spirit of our mind. So he's almost unifying our mindset with our spirit. To say that our mindset or our attitude, our thoughts, everything has to conform with the inclinations of our spirit. He says that they're so coupled, it's as if they're glued together. Okay? So that he wants to emphasize there has to be a holistic renewal. We don't just say that we're we're renewed in a thought, or we're renewed in a certain behavior, or we're renewed in a certain action or whatever. But our whole mindset, our spiritual life, it's almost like our whole being. Okay? Now, if you dig into the way St. Paul puts it here, because there's a very interesting relationship between this instruction to, to be renewed and when he talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Okay, so let me explain to you this relationship whenever you look at the instruction to have that transformation of taking off the old, putting on the new, compared with this renewal. Okay, so Father Lawrence Farley says, our task now is to be renewed. And he mentions the Greek here is, on a nail, in the spirit of your mind. Unlike the verbal forms for our putting off and putting on, the aorist past tense, this verb is in the present tense. Okay, so he's going to get into a little bit of grammar here and might be complicated, but it's actually a beautiful point that he emphasizes. So, where is he getting at here and breaking down different tense in, this, in these verbs? He says, it means that this renewal is a present and continuing process, an ongoing work. Okay, so going back, renewal, the Greek for it is ananeu, and it's different than the, the verb form that's used for putting off and putting on. When, when you look at the verb that's used for putting off and putting on, it's in the aorist or past tense, which means there's an absolute or a fixed action. Okay, something that happened. It's in the past. All right? Whereas this verb for renewed, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, he says it's in the present tense. So this means this renewal is a present and continuing process. It's an ongoing work. 
which is different than the baptism that you received in the past. Whenever you actually were chrismated, whenever you were buried with Christ and you put on the new man, that's something that happened back then. But now he's talking about this renewal and he says that this is something ongoing. Okay, So he says, our inner attitudes and motivations, the spirit, must be transformed by our constant attentive striving. The result is that we're made new and young. And the Greek here, neos, is literally the word that comes from young. We're not to let the Gentile world age us, making us bitter and cynical. In Christ we are renewed and our youthful vigor is restored. So you have to think of it in the sense of returning to our innocence, our purity, our infancy, and restoring that youthful vigor. And this renewal, it's an ongoing process. It's something that's constantly happening, which is different than what happened in the past. This is a present work. Okay? Because a lot of times we, we might think, okay, I, I was baptized, I received the Holy Spirit, I'm good. But that's not enough. That needs to be renewed. There needs to be a present, constant process. Alright, so any comments or questions here? Okay, so he continues to talk about this new nature, right? He says, to put on the new nature created after the likeness of God. So what is this new nature? If you think of the one who, who manifested God to us, the one who revealed what the likeness of God in its perfection really looks like. What's the first thing on your mind? It's Christ, right? So when when St. Paul says to put on the new nature, which is created after the likeness of God, it is to be Christ. Okay? St. Gregory of Nyssa says, there's but one garment of salvation, namely Christ. Hence, the new man created in God's likeness and is none other than Christ. One who has put on Christ has thus put on the new person created in God's likeness. So to be like God is to be Christ. Who is more like God but the one who by nature is God, manifests God, and reveals to us everything about God, known by Christ. Alright? Now, from this point on, St. Paul is going to repetitively emphasize the concept of this replacement. Right? He's going to reiterate this concept of Removing something and adding something. And 
He's not just going to talk about rep- like eliminating a certain behavior or a certain problem. But replacing the old with the new. Okay? And that's essentially what the Christian life is all about. We'll get into a little bit more of this in the next section, but before we move on to verse 29 and 30, we're just going to take the next couple of verses. Are there any comments or questions here? Actually, 25 to 28, not, not that far ahead yet. Okay, so Okay, so let's go to 25 to 28. And then after this little section we'll take 29 and 30 as I, as I just mentioned because those two kind of serve to wrap up the chapter actually but um, the breakdown is just a little different for editorial purposes. Alright, so he says, Therefore, putting away falsehood, let everyone speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may be able to give to those in need. Alright, so again, take a moment to read that on your own, and we'll talk about it together. Alright, so we see here a couple of examples of those replacements that I just mentioned earlier, right? Like removing the bad and adding the good. So replacing sin with virtue, right? And that's essentially what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is one of constant replacement. And every tool that the church gives us is to promote that replacement. It's to promote that transformation. The sacraments are all intended to do that. And all the other tools like fasting, for example, we sometimes 
confuse the real meaning and purpose of fasting to think that it's just a matter of eliminating stuff. That's not true at all. If all you're doing is eliminating, you're not actually accomplishing the goal. You might get past the first step, but that's not the goal. The goal is the replacement or the transformation so that whatever is eliminated can be replaced with something better, which is Christ. Right, so, what examples do you see here of this replacement or, or this sort of transformation? Putting away lying and speaking the truth. Okay, good. So, putting away lying and speaking the truth. So, that's a very simple example of eliminating something and adding something instead to replace it with a virtue. Right. Is there another one here? Don't let the devil be in control. Don't let the devil be in control. Okay, very good. So instead of walking in... In the way that he wants you to, to act, you remove yourself from that. What else? Look at the very end of the section. Is it enough just for the thief to avoid stealing? What does he say? Perfect. Perfect. So it's not just enough that the thief no longer steals. But he says, but la- rather let him labor doing honest work. So to do good deeds. Right? So we'll get into these specific details. But generally speaking, this concept is so important for us to recognize in our spiritual life. We have to fix this concept as our objective in everything we do. This concept of replacement. This concept of not just eliminating, not just removing, but adding and increasing in our virtues. Otherwise, we stop doing something bad and all we're doing instead is just sitting around like idle people. All right? So let's talk about this first concept or topic of replacement. Okay, In verse 25 when he says, Putting away falsehood, let everyone speak the truth with his neighbor for remembers one of another. So what's the incentive that he gives us here or the reason that he gives for eliminating lying and, and, and speaking falsehood? And replacing it with the truth. What's the reason? That we're members of one another. That we're members of one another. This is basically his justification for you having to do that. He's asking us to put away falsehood and to speak the truth because we are members of one another. 
And if we recognize that as a fundamental principle, then we'll apply this concept of putting away falsehood and speaking truth. Right? So, this always has to be our motive. It always has to be our, um, our, our, our foundation to recognize we are members of one another. So, when I am lying to you, I'm lying to myself. I'm lying to the same body. If we're members one of another, imagine if the hand lies to the foot, or the eyes lie to the mouth. You know, one, one time you see something, and then a few minutes later, you say that you saw something else that you know wasn't the truth. So, at the end of the day, the body is lying to itself. If we recognize that we are one body, we recognize that we are members one of another, even the people that irritate us the most, (laughs) even the people that frustrate us, that drive us crazy, that we are the same body. And no matter what's happening around me, if I lie to you, I'm lying to myself. And I'm hurting myself. I'm hurting the same body. Alright? So, he continues to say, Be angry, but do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. So, let me ask you a simple question. Is anger good or bad? Is anger good or bad? Not bad. It's not bad. Okay, why do you think so? I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I just want to hear more about why you think that. Yeah, I just lost you. I think you're on mute. You don't sin? Okay, so it's not bad because so long as you don't sin, okay? What else? So, which is worse, the anger or the sin? Well, there's no question about sin. We're not even going to go that far because we all agree about that, right? We all agree that sin is sin. Sin is bad. But but what about anger itself? If you look at the, the concept of anger or look at hatred or look at... Um, any other emotion like sorrow, sadness. Okay, so those are expressions. Now, if you think about all of these faculties, and that's how the fathers describe them, you could basically 
call them emotions or certain feelings or certain um, passions, you, you have to identify them as natural components of our humanity. They are natural components of our being. Okay? Something like anger, something like hatred, something like sorrow or sadness. All of those emotions are naturally a part of every human being. So, our objective is never to eliminate those feelings or never to eliminate those passions or movements in our body or our souls, but to direct them in a pure direction. To direct them to a righteous path. So let me share with you how Metropolitan of uh, Nefpectos, Metropolitan Heratheos, he's, he, he sums it up in a very simple way. <coughs> he says, according to St. John of the Ladder, St. John Climacus, God neither caused nor created evil. <coughs> so we have taken natural attributes of our own and turned them into passions. So we've taken these attributes, not because God placed them in us, but we misdirected them towards evil. Okay? And then he gives a few examples. He says... The seed of childbearing, right? For example, like having um, an erotic type of love is natural in us, but we pervert it for fornication. He says, the anger which God gave us against the serpent to wage war against the devil is natural, but we've used it against our neighbor. We have a natural urge to excel in virtue, but instead we compete in evil. Even this emotion and desire to compete, this is something that should drive us to increase in our virtues, but accept, but instead we use it to fight against one another. He continues to say, Nature stirs within us the desire for glory. But that glory is of a heavenly kind for the joy of heavenly blessing. It says arrogance is natural, but it should be used against the demons. Joy is ours by nature, but it should be joy on account of the Lord and for the sake of doing good to our neighbor. Nature has given us resentment. But it ought to be directed against the enemies of our souls. And we have a natural desire for pleasure and not for 
profligacy. So he continues to mention examples like this, but we could basically look at every type of passion, even the ones that might seem good, like joy or happiness. If we think happiness is always good, I can be happy with a sin. Doesn't mean just because I'm happy, I'm on the right path, right? I can be angry towards a sin, which is great, right? So, it's important for us not to just work on eliminating our passions, but to sanctify them, to baptize them, to purify them so that they are directed towards Christ. And many of the fathers, like St. Theophan the Recluse, actually says that an initial impulse of, of anger towards a sinful thought is very helpful to eliminate that thought and to replace it with a better thought. So as soon as you have a thought to judge your neighbor... As soon as, as you have a thought to look at a bad picture, or as soon as you have a thought to insult somebody, you should respond to that thought with anger and, and, and reject it and, and eliminate that thought. And in turns, you replace it with something better. Right? So this is something that we don't really understand well in our spiritual walk because we grew up saying anger is bad, sadness is bad, all those things are bad, but you know there's a godly sorrow. And that's what St. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, which is not to be regretted. But... He says, the sorrows of this world produces death. So you see here, sorrow or sadness can be good or bad, just like everything else in our life. Does that make sense? I want to make sure that everybody has a good grasp of this concept because it really changes the way we live whenever we understand this concept. Make sense? Okay, now, going back to what St. Paul is saying here specifically when he says, be angry and do not sin. He's telling us just to cover his ground, to remind us that even if there's a temptation to be angry towards our brother, even if we're going to fall into the sin of anger, that we can check that anger and not allow it to develop into a sinful action. Okay? St. John Chrysostom says, It's better not to grow angry at all. And he's explaining this in regards to anger towards our brothers, or anger towards someone else. It's better not to grow angry at all. But if one does fall into anger, he should at least not be carried away by it toward something worse. So even if you get angry towards someone, which is not good, you can 
check that anger. You can control it. You can stop that anger from developing into a sin. And that's why he says, be angry, but don't sin. So even if you got angry, like malish, it's okay. As long as you don't say something mean or aggressive or use violence or let that anger develop into rage or to take away your peace. Remember, Christ was angry whenever he saw everyone selling um, uh, merchandise in the temple and he flipped the tables and that was a righteous anger. It was a righteous indignation. But, you know, if we were to identify the heart of Christ, there's no anger in his heart. This is just something that surfaces once in a blue moon. This is something that surfaces on occasions, on rare occasions. So if we are to define his life, it's, it's a life of peace. And even if that anger surfaces, it, it surfaces with righteousness. Now, St. Paul gives us a wonderful reminder to not just check this anger, but to check it urgently. Right? Notice what he says here in verse 26. Be angry, but do not sin. Then he said, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He didn't say, be angry and you can hold on to that anger for a few days. Or if somebody is really irritating you for a while, a couple of weeks (laughs) or a month. No, he says, not even for a day. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So that means don't let the sun set while there is still anger in your heart. That means you have to replace this anger, the bad type of anger, the anger that you have towards a brother or a friend, with love and with peace, promptly, urgently, immediately. Don't just say, I'll replace my anger with peace tomorrow. I'll fix this problem with that person next week. We'll talk next time we see each other. No, 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 no. It has to be ASAP, as soon as possible. St. John elaborates on this. He says, Do you wish to have your fill of anger? So he's asking like, Do you want to... Let that anger build up. He says, one hour or two or three is enough for you. But don't let the sun go down and leave you both as enemies. It was God's goodness that did not leave us in anger. He did not let us part in enmity. He shed His light upon those of us who were sinners. So when evening is coming on, be reconciled. Crush the evil impulses while they are fresh. 
crush the evil impulses while they are fresh. For if night overtakes you, the next day will not be enough time to extinguish the further evil which, will, which has been increasing overnight. So he says, you have enough troubles to worry about and to handle in one day. If you let that anger carry on to the next day and allow it to build on top of the anger that's coming for other issues and it continues to build and build and build, then it will, it will be too much for you. Okay? So again, a lot of people are anti, um, anti-conflict. They don't want to, to deal with um, situations. You know, maybe th- there's a little problem between a couple of friends and maybe because one of them knows that it's going to require a little bit of work to, to reconcile and to talk and to listen to one another, then, you know, that person might just say, forget it, I'm not going to bother. And then that anger just lingers and it lingers and it destroys not just the relationship, but it destroys the soul of the person who's holding on to that anger. A lot of people that just don't want to put in the work to be reconciled and to eliminate that anger, to, to talk and to listen and to be reconciled, then allow that anger to destroy them. So I hope that we will not just be committed to having peace, and destroying any type of anger that we have towards our brothers and our sisters. But I hope that we do it urgently, that we do it promptly, that we do it as quickly as possible. All right? So let's continue with the next topic of replacement. And this is in... Verse 28. So again, it's not just about eliminating evil. But in verse 28, he makes this clear. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may be able to give to those in need. Right? So it's not enough to just eliminate stealing, but to work and to be charitable but to work and to be charitable. This is something that our society doesn't really understand. That when we see a thief, um, we're more concerned about throwing that thief or that person in prison. We call them a criminal and we say, Just get them off the street. Just have them stop doing what they're doing. Right? We're not concerned about that person transforming. We're not concerned about that person changing. About that person using his hands for charity instead of using his hands to steal. And 
we see this so much in our society, in our legal system, in our, our prison system, you know, there's not much emphasis on, on rehabilitation and transformation. And we might really take this flaw into our own mindset sometimes, where we see a certain problem and we want the easy way out. And we say, just stop the problem, just eliminate it. But we have to do the extra work to replace that problem with a better solution, right? So it's not just enough for the thief to stop stealing and to sit around like an idle guy with nothing to do. But St. Paul says that thief, that criminal, has to be a source of charity, has to be someone who gives. All right, so any comments or questions there before we move on to the next couple of verses? All right, so we'll go to just the next two verses, verses 29 and 30. And if we stop at verse 30 as the next section that we look at, it will make a little more sense because it's almost like St. Paul is wrapping up the section right here with verse 30, even though there are 32 verses in this chapter. Again, the number of verses and the number of chapters are just editorial. When this was written, it was just one big scroll, right? There was no chapter number or verse number or whatever, all right? So um, we'll take these next two verses, and I think it'll be a good place for us to stop. Um, but if we have any time, we can take the, the last two verses of the chapter as well. So in verse 29, he says, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for edifying, as fits the occasion that it may impart grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Alright, so quickly read that one more time. It's just a short little section and then we'll discuss it together. Okay, so do you see another concept of replacement here? It should be very clear. It should jump straight out at you. And it's using the same sense as one example we, we spoke about earlier, and that's the sense of speech, of talking. So before... In, in explaining this replacement when it comes to talking, he said replacing the lies with truth, right? Here he says replacing the evil with what? With grace, 
Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for edifying as fits the occasion that it may impart grace to those who hear. So, if we think of the purpose of our speech, the purpose of our words, it's to impart grace. It's to edify. And there's a lot of wisdom that's necessary for that. Because he says, not just to speak good words, but that the words fit the occasion. Right? And that's interesting because a lot of times we might think, well, hey, it was the right thing to say. But maybe it wasn't the right time. <laughs> or maybe it wasn't the right place. And a wise Christian will not only say the right thing, will not only say it at the right time, but will also say it at the right place. And will know when the person who's listening is ready to receive it. Right? St. Jerome says a good word is one that serves to build upon the occasion. Communicating grace to the hearers because it teaches them to pursue virtues and shun vices. An evil word is one that prompts them to sin and rather drives them headlong into disaster. Whenever we say what is not in season or inappropriate for the context or that which does not contribute to the good of the hearers, an evil word proceeds from our mouth. Even if we do not direct, even if we do no direct harm, yet we're not thereby building up, we shall pay the penalty of an evil word. So this is a very interesting way to look at this, uh, this instruction that we have in the scriptures. Because it's not enough for us to just say, stop saying bad things. It's not enough for, for us to say, speak no evil. Or do no evil. And not only is, is that like far from the standard... But it's also far from the standard if we say, just say a bunch of good stuff. No, 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 it's not enough to just say a bunch of good stuff, but to say a bunch of good stuff the right way and at the right time. That's a very high standard for Christians. And it's just heartbreaking to see the words that are tossed back and forth in society now, if you look at the news or anything on social media, Twitter or Facebook or whatever, everyone is saying a ton of stuff. And even some of it that's good is just inflammatory. Now, somebody may say something to prove a point or to emphasize something true but 
it's more divisive or more destructive. And unfortunately, we might fall into that as Christians too. But we got to remember the standard for a Christian. The standard is to speak edifying words. The standard is to impart grace. To impart grace. And I have to always remind myself of whether I did that or not. Alright, so just wrapping up this this section in these two verses that we spoke about. He then gives he then gives the Ephesians a a significant incentive. Right? He says in verse 30 and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's almost like he's saying, get away from the Gentiles, take off the old man, put on Christ, replace the bad with good, the old with the new, so that you do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Father Lawrence Farley explains it in a beautiful way, and I think this will be a good place for us to conclude. He says, this is the most powerful incentive. We should speak the truth, forgive each other, giving alms instead of stealing, speaking only beneficial words, because to refuse to love one another would grieve the Holy Spirit of God. To walk in the old ways of the Gentiles would be to risk the departure of the Holy Spirit from our lives. In our baptism, we were sealed in Him until the second coming, when our redemption would be completed. How tragic would it be to grieve and lose Him, who was to be our guarantee of final salvation. So, it's important for us to cultivate an atmosphere or an environment or a place in our heart for the Spirit to be active. Not just to avoid grieving the Spirit, which would cause us a tremendous amount of harm, but to provide a place where the Spirit is active, where the Spirit is working, where the Spirit glorifies God in all that we do. Alright, so any comments or questions there? I know I ended a few minutes late. But if you have any questions, I will be more than happy to take them. All right, so we'll close here and glory be to God forever. Amen.